Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. The public health care emergency declared in early 2020 was put in place to provide waivers from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to ease the burden on hospitals and other providers during the pandemic. It's been extended 12 times since its implementation and is finally slated to end on May 11th. As the economy fell apart during the coronavirus pandemic, the U.S. government shored up our society and the tattered social safety net with bipartisan support. On March 6, the Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Supplemental Appropriations Act, which allocated $8.3 billion for vaccine research and money for states and local governments to try and stop the spread of the virus, which was quickly followed by the Families First Coronaviruses Response Act, offering food assistance, sick leave, and unprecedented unemployment support. And there was much more to follow with the CARES Act and the Declaration of Public Health Emergency for Coronavirus Pandemic that allowed for waivers to normal regulations, allowing more freedom and accessibility to healthcare that had previously been quite difficult. While the virus and its ongoing impact has not ended, our classification of an emergency circumstance is coming to an end, and with it, many of the waivers that we have become accustomed to, and in many cases have helped accelerate the introduction and widespread adoption of virtualization technologies. None more so than telehealth or telemedicine, something that many of us in healthcare technology have been talking about for many years, but has remained two years away for the last 10 years and was, until 2020, still two years away. There have been some additional targeted extensions, including a two-year extension of Medicare telehealth flexibilities, but the regulatory and reimbursement landscape is about to change and organizations will need to once again adapt to survive and thrive in this changing landscape and the rush of non-traditional entrants and disruptors of healthcare technology is going to make that difficult. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Asif Shah Muhammad. He's a partner at ECG Management Consulting. Hi Asif, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on the program today. So uh, telehealth has uh, been a, a long time coming. You and I have been in this space. You've uh, been a, a contributor, participant, advisor uh, to the delivery of technology into healthcare and specifically around telehealth. 
And then we saw this big expansion as a result of the pandemic. How did you feel about that? Yeah, I think the pandemic has demonstrated that there is appetite for innovation by providers, especially when the legacy regulatory barriers and restrictions are reduced or eliminated. This was evident from the way that hospitals were able to create new ways to protect patients and their employees, especially during the pandemic. And then providers set out to devise new ways to deliver care. We saw how rapidly organizations scaled their telehealth programs. They also identified novel uses for virtual care, which have evolved, such as uh, virtual rounding, uh, emergency room video uh, handoffs, etc. So, from my perspective, uh, you know, I think as we look at the evolution of telehealth, this is not new. This telehealth has been around for 40, 50 years, but we've always been, I think you and I have joked about this, we're always two years away from telehealth taking off. And with the pandemic, we suddenly saw that everyone saw the value of telehealth. And, and now here we are where I think telehealth is here to stay, as we said, the genie's out of the bottle. The question now is, how do we make this sustainable? Yeah, I, I think you bring up a good point. I mean, it's it's been in the, the makings for all this period of time, which thank goodness, because I'm pretty sure that if we had arrived at that point and nobody had been thinking about it, we wouldn't have been able to sort of accelerate and get it stood up. And I know lots of places worked really hard at sort of creating the infrastructure. It wasn't always there. You know, they cobbled things together. Um, you know, there were some false starts, but I think for the most part, it was a really positive experience. And I would be hard pushed to find anybody that says, no, no, telehealth, terrible thing. We should never do that. But we're now in a circumstance where all of these regulatory issues, which let's be frank, based on what you just said, and certainly my experience, it feels like that was the inhibitor in this. That was the, the somebody pushing on the brake, not the technology. And everybody's going, this is great. But now they're saying, no, it's back to business as usual. Let's pull all this back. What exactly is going on? Tell us what you see in terms of the regulatory changes and that impact, if you would. Yeah, great question. Earlier this year, the administration announced an intent to end the COVID-19 public health emergency or the PHE. And this goes into effect on May 11, 2023. So just a little about a month from now. And during the PHE, many telehealth and other healthcare related flexibilities were relied upon by patients and clinicians. Number of legacy barriers to telehealth were temporarily lifted, leading to an accelerated adoption of telehealth as we talked about. These barriers such as the site of service requirements, licensing requirements for rendering providers in individual states, or regulatory considerations such as the type of telehealth services that could be billed and reimbursement for those uh, services which varied by provider. So some of those uh, pandemic era telehealth waivers uh, will survive at the end of the PHE, but not every exception will continue to stay in place. So I wanna provide a few key takeaways. Um, first of all, uh, some of the extended flexibilities for uh, Medicare beneficiaries. This uh, Congress has uh, actually extended some of those flexibilities for at least the next couple of years through December, 2024. 
under what's called the Consolidated Appropriations Act. So before you go on, let's talk a little bit about that. Why does Medicare get a special pass? Is there something peculiar about that group of patients that allows them to continue on with this? It's a good question. I, I, uh, one of the issues that has always been a consideration as folks have, or the regulators have thought about telehealth is overutilization of healthcare services. And that seems to be one of the areas as, uh, as Congress has been thinking about telehealth and they're saying, how do we make sure that, you know, we're, we're able to provide telehealth as a service at the same time for our Medicare beneficiaries, they're not overusing this service and and it is being provided appropriately, right? I think one of the things that has always been an issue pre-COVID was folks said, is there parity between a telehealth visit and an in-person visit? And uh, as we looked at some of the results from COVID uh, and the usage of telehealth, it is clear that telehealth is a benefit. It is It is at parity to an in-person visit and also provides a lot of convenience. At the same time, there are opportunities for folks just overusing this visit, uh, this particular type of uh, care. So that's that's been the, the core impediment. And that is why there's such a big focus on, on Medicare-related issues. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point. There's great research that demonstrates that parity issue. And, and let's be clear, this you know two- or three-dimensional, if you include time, interaction is not precisely the same, but it fulfills a purpose. And I think some of the research, some great research out of you know that EPIC database demonstrated very clearly that there wasn't this ongoing need for an additional in-person visit, it was actually replacing it. So we've seen tremendous value, yet we're seeing this pullback and some challenges. So how do we sort of approach this, given that it, it's, I, I feel it's out of our hands, unless you've got a direct line into the politicians and you're able to change this, it's, it, this is gonna happen, right? This is going to happen. I think it's, it's, important to look at the regulatory landscape, understand, especially for health systems and provider organization, what's staying in place and what's changing, what's the operational impact. And so if we think about some of the, some of what's staying with uh, at least the extended flexibilities for Medicare beneficiaries, the originating site requirements, that's staying in place at least for the next couple of years. So Medicare beneficiaries can continue to access telehealth services from any geographic area, regardless of where the patient or provider is located. So prior to the PHE, the originating site, i.e. the physical location of the patient, limited telehealth services for beneficiaries, unless they were in rural areas and or it required the beneficiary to travel to an eligible healthcare uh, facility to access telehealth services. So yeah, so removing completely the benefit of telehealth. Hey, travel somewhere to get telehealth. Absolutely. Crazy, right? Absolutely. So so that that is at least being extended. I think people understand now at a high level that this is. This is a there is a convenience associated with telehealth, and so you you have to at least keep that in place. 
The second area is uh, letting certain telehealth services be rendered with audio only if the if the beneficiary is unable to use both the audio and video, especially on a smartphone or other device. So this is really critical, especially for Medicare patients. As we look across the industry, um, audio visits will continue to, or you know, in with the with at least the extensions, audio visits will continue to be reimbursable uh, for uh, telehealth visits. But it's important because we typically see that the percentage of patients that prefer audio visits is continues to be higher than patients who prefer a video visit. So I'm glad that for now, at least, they're keeping that in place. And, and I'm just going to posit that that's probably tilted slightly towards the older generation who prefer the sort of telephone. I mean, you see that with the sort of generational differences in communication. And they're the people that we're trying to service who struggle with, you know, mobility, getting to and from and all of the risks associated with that. So that's good news. Absolutely. Um, I think the other area that's also good news is the list of providers that are eligible to deliver telehealth services. That expanded, that expanded list will include physical therapists, occupational therapists, uh, speech language pathologists, and audiologists. So that's another great area that, that for now is staying in place. And, and if I can, I mean, I've got to tell you that from a personal standpoint, the PT piece of this has been incredibly important to me. And I've seen huge success and even the innovation that sort of come through with some clever uh, sort of capabilities. But even in its simplest form, it worked extremely well for me. So, I, again, I think this expansion of those um, delivery services is really important. Yep. I think the other area is around hospital at home programs. These can continue to be utilized to provide services to patients in their home, including through telehealth. We've seen hospital at home programs continue to gain traction with health systems pursuing these strategies increasingly to manage costs and to enhance the patient experience. So I think that's, that's, a, that's good news. The other piece with the Consolidated Appropriations Act, it also delayed the imposition of the prerequisite for in-person requirements mm. for mental health services that are rendered through telehealth until after December 2024. So for now, I think it gives folks some breathing room. Uh, while overall demand for telehealth services with other specialties has come down, we've seen how virtual behavioral health visits have skyrocketed and it's seen a 45-fold increase within just the last one year. Yeah, you know, just pause for a second. I, I, I'm going to restate that 45 times. That's an enormous jump. And, you know, I've heard of a number of programs and, you know, I know there's a lot of con concern around misuse and, you know, potentially abuse, but I've even heard of programs that are delivering some of these behavioral uh, services into homeless shelters. So imagine that. Could you imagine those individuals actually getting service? So it sounds like good news that's being extended, but not everything is being extended, right? That's a, that's a good point. So while some of the extensions we just, just talked about, they're really, really good news. There's some additional 
telehealth policy impacts at the end of the PHE that health systems and other digital health companies, they need to start addressing, right? So the first one, the Medicare payment parity is set to expire at the end of 2023. So it's just around the corner. And during the pandemic, the CMS implemented payment parity for virtual care visits, which provided at uh, non-health facilities, such as a beneficiary's home, right? So this allowed telehealth services to be reimbursed at the same rate as an in-person visit. Um, payment parity rates could return to pre-pandemic rates unless lawmakers choose to extend those policies. And this will likely have a major impact on aligning providers and their compensation methodologies for rendering telehealth visits. Yeah, so let's be clear. I mean, I think if you think about it logically, and I know there's two sides to all of these stories, but it's not quite the same as an in-person visit, you know, pulling back or scaling back some of that. But you're right, it sort of boils down to some of the compensation issues and how you approach that with your staff and indeed, I would imagine governance, right? Absolutely. Um, another impact is the end of telehealth and remote patient monitoring, i.e. RPM waivers. So unless the Office of the Inspector General, the OIG, issues additional guidance or extension after May 11th, healthcare providers offering telehealth or RPM services to Medicare beneficiaries can no longer reduce or waive any cost-sharing obligations that a patient may owe for such services. This has major operational implications for health systems and digital health uh, companies that are providing these services, as they will need to ensure that they have the proper payment mechanisms in place and collection mechanisms in place to make sure that they're collecting all of these copies up front. So that's that's going to be have major, major uh, operational um, uh, impact. So as you think about the the changes and, you know, the one that continues to sort of concern me is around some of the behavioral health and the medications. And I know, you know, let's, again, let's just put it on the table. The bad actors here have essentially poisoned this particular well. It was an important area. It allowed people to gain access. And behavioral health, I want to say, is just this burgeoning problem that continues to, uh, I, I think, change our society and it's not being addressed. And that's now disappearing. How are they going to approach that? That's a great question, right? Because during the PH, uh, the public health emergency, the Drug Enforcement Agency or the DEA waived all of the requirements for an in-person medical evaluation. Mm. This allowed providers to prescribe controlled substances via telehealth to the extent that was permitted by state laws for both new and established patients. I think that's an important distinction, right? And so the DEA recently issued rules that would restrict the ability of providers to prescribe controlled substances without an in-person visit. So patients will need to be seen in person or have their care transition to a local provider. This proposed rule will definitely impact patients and direct-to-consumer telehealth companies, some of which have actually come under recent scrutiny over their virtual prescribing practices. 
Yeah, let's be clear. Rightly so. I, I'm just going to say I'm not going to hold back on that. I think we really should do a better job of policing that up front so as not to get into this problem. So, you know, some changes, I think some positive, I, I would say potentially some negative in this at least. And, you know, certainly some concerns. People have spun up all of these programs. As you think about this, uh, you know, there's lots of non-traditional players jumping into this space. Hey, I can do healthcare. Um, you know, health systems have been in this space for a long time. Are they safe or are they just going to have to adjust? And if so, what are they going to have to do? Yeah, I think from a traditional health system perspective, um, several non-traditional competitors are, are disrupting the healthcare space, as you said, right? And they're very well-funded startups. Uh, these market entrants are advancing telehealth solutions. They're seeking partnerships with health systems, health plans, employers, direct-to-consumer models. I was at uh, Vive earlier this week, and there was there, I, I saw a presentation about Best Buy and Atrium Health that are partnering to enhance the patient experience, tapping into specially trained Geek Squad agents to allow patients to receive uh, hospital care in the comfort of their own homes. So I think when, you know, while these non-traditional players have a lot of funding available, local health systems and provider, uh, providers have something that these non-traditional player, players do not, and that is familiarity. So the personal bonds that exist between the patients uh, and their physicians, that cannot be easily replaced. And well-known hospitals that have deep roots in their communities, um, they can continue to service their patients. According to a recent survey, 65% of patients still trust and prefer their traditional health systems and their relationships with their local providers. So it is on this basis, in my view, that health systems can continue to effectively compete with these non-traditional um, uh, players by expanding their telehealth capabilities and developing a cohort of community providers, both independent and um, employed docs, to render telehealth visits. So I, I think all in all, you know, some significant changes. Obviously, people are going to need some help and guidance through all of this to uh, really navigate what is a, a very uh, different landscape to the one that existed four years ago. But in many respects, a lot better. I think we're delivering um, more healthcare. It, it's not it's still not evenly distributed. And I think that's one of the elements that we have to focus on. The good news for the, the health systems is I think they have that relationship, as you describe. And, you know, for the most part, I feel like they've got a decent handle on technology, albeit they've, you know, struggled with some of the innovations that have been thrust upon them. Let's call out the EMR. It hasn't been great success that everybody calls. But I think it's coming into its own now with that resource. And creating that relationship is going to be critical to the sort of value proposition that patients are seeking. And I think extending into this older generation who, you know, traditionally more audio, but, you know, perhaps move into the video. Can we uh, manage to pull them in in ways that are going to be meaningful and allow them? And obviously within the regulatory changes. Asif, thanks very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Nick, for having me on the program. Once again, we find the pandemic-induced acceleration of innovation and progress that has pushed all of us to adopt virtualization technology. Having experienced it, most want it to continue. 
perhaps adapted to different circumstances, but still available. With regulatory changes, the rules and reimbursements are changing, and with new entrants, it will require adaptation and even newfound partnerships. Otherwise, we risk finding that the outsiders today will be tomorrow's primary incumbents. Your better pill to swallow is to refresh your thinking about what tomorrow in healthcare will be and adjust. Double down on the tele and virtual health technologies, adapting the staffing and reimbursement to match the changing regulatory space, but delivering the service that has been and will continue to be a real patient and staff crowd pleaser. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare, as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.